All right, hello again. Welcome back to part three of our Jesus, the Center of History series. So glad to have you with us wherever you've come from, for whatever reason you are here, whether you're part of the Live Church family or you're just here because you're curious about Jesus. Really glad to have you. We've made this claim that Jesus is the center of history. It's a pretty bold claim. And we've been seeking to evaluate what exactly that means and why we as Christians are confident when we say Jesus is the center of history. Thus far, we've talked about a number of important dimensions of that. Number one, that Jesus really lived and really was crucified by the Romans. In our last session on Sunday, we explored the evidence for Jesus' bodily resurrection. In particular, looking at the trustworthiness of the biographies of Jesus, as well as the textual evidence for Jesus' resurrection. When we look at Jesus and his resurrection, there's a really interesting quote that I found from a physician and engineer named Joshua Swamidas. He says this, the physical resurrection, sorry, without the physical resurrection, 2,000 years of history are left begging for explanation, like a movie missing a key scene. No other event in all recorded history has reached so far across national, ethnic, religious, linguistic, cultural, political, and geographic borders. The story of the resurrection of Jesus is remarkable. But it's not just the event of the resurrection itself that we need to evaluate. It's also the subsequent impact on the followers and friends of Jesus that we need to evaluate to determine the significance and veracity of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. To this, we look at the story of the church. And it truly is remarkable and without comparison in global history. In short, how did a band of mostly uneducated misfits from an obscure outpost of the Roman Empire launch a global revolution that influenced millions of people over hundreds of years without any force, government, military, or substantive organization in the first several hundred years? In the story of the church, in response to the resurrection, we see a significant change in individuals, a significant change in communities, and a global movement launched. How did that happen? And what does it say about the resurrection of Jesus? I want to talk about those three. The individuals, the communities, and the global impact of the church, and how it leads us to have even greater confidence and significance in Jesus as the center of history. First of all, following the resurrection of Jesus, we have radically changed disciples or followers of Jesus. The biographical accounts of Jesus' life contain a picture of the disciples who, uh, just before Jesus' resurrection, were genuinely afraid for their lives. In Mark 14, 20, we read about the fact that all of Jesus' disciples were scattered. As Jesus was arrested, Jesus said this, Am I leading a rebellion? That you have come at me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. 
A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him, and he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. You see, the disciples were afraid for good reason. The Romans had a uh, reputation of absolutely crushing any threat of rebellion. To be associated with Jesus was to be charged with inciting a rebellion, and it would mean almost certain death for those close to it. And not just death by itself, but a brutal, public, and humiliating death. To be associated with Jesus was a death sentence. And so they fled, as anyone would in that scenario. A few days later, we read that they're actually hiding behind closed doors. In John 20, it said, When the evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews, and Jesus came and stood among them. So we have disciples that are scattering, afraid, fearful, behaving, not in a manner at all like those who are confident of what they believe. However, just a few weeks later, we read about one of Jesus' closest friends and one of those who uh, was the first to betray him. It says in Acts chapter 2, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, the same people that they were afraid of just a few weeks earlier, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain to you this. Listen carefully to what I say. In just a few weeks, the disciples were transformed from scared, disunified, confused people to a unified, coherent force with an established leadership and a clear message to convey. How is that possible? Surely, uh, such a complete transformation in the disciples is indicative of a substantial catalytic event in their lives, such as the resurrection. Now, you might object to say, well, they had concocted the story to fulfill personal ambition, avoid humiliation, or some other objective. The, the challenge with this response is that most of the early followers of Jesus would suffer, and in some cases, uh, many would even die for their profession of Jesus. In fact, it only took a few weeks beyond that uh, message Peter shared for the first person to die for professing their faith in Jesus, Stephen. The early Jewish Christians in particular faced a two-sided rejection for following Jesus. On the one side, they faced rejection from their ruling Romans because they were not following the Roman way. And from their kinsmen, fellow Jews, they were also facing rejection for abandoning their heritage. There was tremendous cultural and social pressure for them to not follow Jesus, and yet they did. If they were seeking material gain, where is their gain? There's no gain for the first followers of Jesus. You might say, well, maybe there's some other reason. Well, you see, many people have taught falsehoods. But I don't think that anyone would be willing to die, and certainly we wouldn't see so many people suffer for something they knew was false. Well, maybe we could say the disciples were transformed because they were genuinely misguided or maybe even mistaken. 
And it's possible there are lots of people even today who are very genuine in their beliefs and very genuinely misguided. I think of, for example, flat earthers uh, as an example. It happens all the time, but this is different. You see, part of it is that there is a very short time delay between the time where the disciples were afraid and the time of the disciples proclaiming a unified and coherent message of Jesus' resurrection. The message of the resurrected Messiah was a completely new idea without precedent. Given the very short time frame from the death of Jesus to the public proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus, it's highly unlikely that a group of people could have unified their message so coherently for such a new idea. They may have been misguided, but for such a large number of people to be misguided in exactly the same unified way in such a short period of time is highly unlikely. So we see, first of all, this radically changed individuals immediately following the resurrection. And while the change in the disciples was significant, the impact of the resurrection very quickly spread from a few individuals to change the very foundations of Jewish and non-Jewish culture alike. There's a few aspects to the broader cultural implications of the resurrection very quickly after Jesus. The first was changed Sabbath rhythms. Now this might seem really technical, but it's quite an important and interesting detail of early Christian life. It's a somewhat understated fact, in fact. You see, the Sabbath was ingrained into Jewish thought and behavior for more than a thousand years of ritualistic and habitual actions. The Sabbath was not just a religious observance, it was a deeply valued and cherished part of human life, not to be changed or altered. And this is evidenced directly in the ministry of Jesus and his repeated altercations with the ruling Jewish leaders over the application of the Sabbath. However, the early Christians very quickly, almost immediately, adapted their day of worship from the Jewish Sabbath, which was historically from Friday evening till Saturday evening. They moved it to what was the first day of the week, Sunday. In fact, there's three New Testament references to what the early Christians called the Lord's Day, the day that they began to worship. This is critically important because the resurrection is the driving motivation for the change in this deeply ingrained cultural behavior. Cultural customs do not change easily or quickly unless there is a catalytic event to cause it to change. It's quite clear that the early Christians were not just adapting and morphing Judaism into a new sect with some minor tweaks. They radically re-envisioned the Jewish faith in light of the historical facts of the resurrection. You see, the veracity of the Christian message is not just borne out in the lives of the disciples and the first followers of Jesus, but also in the way that it immediately transformed relationships between ethnic groups. You see, the Jewish people were fiercely nationalistic 
and largely uninterested in relationships with the outsiders. There was, and in many ways still is, a very large gap between the Jew and the non-Jew or Gentile. It's important to understand that the Jewish identity was very important to the first followers of Jesus, and yet they were finding new ways to distinguish who they were. And it's in here that we start to see a multi-ethnic relationships form. The resurrection radically reoriented relationships between Jew and Gentile. Historically, the Jews and the non-Jews, they were at loggerheads. They were at war with each other. That ethnic, racial, and social divisions ran so deep that they were irreconcilable. In fact, the early church really struggled to, to reconcile its Jewish heritage with its increasingly a growing inclusion of non-Jews. However, the fact that there was even a debate about the inclusion of non-Jews into the work of Jesus is remarkable and without precedent. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So in other words, if the resurrection happened and you believe that, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses on him who call him. Notice what unified the Jews and the Greeks, what brought Jew and Gentile together into relationship. It was the resurrection. And this isn't just a religious idea. It has significant social implications. If, because we see the Jew and the Gentile reconciling in the first century, the question we have to ask is, why? To which the early Christians would say the words of the Apostle Paul, for Jesus is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of, his, of hostility. Ephesians chapter 2. As with the world today, people have been trying to make peace with each other through a variety of means, but have been largely unsuccessful. Here Paul observes a historical fact that is working to actually unify Jew and Gentile, people from different racial groups. Now what's particularly interesting about this, and again why it gives us confidence in the resurrection, is that the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile happened spontaneously and automatically as a result of the first Christians responding to what Christ had done or what they believed had happened in the resurrection. What we read about in the story of the early church is the Christians were scattered under persecution. And their behavior is truly remarkable in that they immediately begin to reach out to and include non-Jews in the story of Jesus. It says in Acts chapter 11, now that those have been scattered by, by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. But... Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus. This is remarkable. We have a 
bridging of social groups because of what had happened in the resurrection. This was not mandated from above or led through an organizational structure. It was a spontaneous and automatic response to what they believed had happened. There was an event that catalyzed or caused the coming together of Jew or Gentile. We must ask why did a scattered, disorganized group of persecuted Jews begin to call for Gentiles to receive a dead rebel leader as their Messiah if he didn't actually rise from the dead? And further, if he didn't rise from the dead, why would the Gentiles respond to the message? Again, how do we make sense of such a unique set of events if the causal events behind them are not true? A cause must be sufficient to explain its effects. And the resurrection is a cause that makes sense of the effects in the Jewish and Gentile community. Now, as we expand on this thought, what we discover is that in the years that followed, the story of the church is nothing short of staggering. The church quite literally, uh, I suppose literally metaphorically, <laughs> exploded across the Roman Empire. By the end of the fourth century, it's estimated that more than half of the Roman world was Christian. Even if that's an exaggeration, by the second century alone, so around 115, 112 AD, the Christian movement had such a significant impact that it was causing sufficient economic uh, dis uh, disruption to the prevailing economic religious systems. That, in fact, the temples and sacrificial systems were being deserted because of the work of Christians. The emperor Trajan uh, was actually engaged by one of the governors, uh, a guy named Pliny, and he wrote to the Emperor Trajan in the year 112 AD. This is just like 50, 60 years after the events of the early church. And it says this, For the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, rank, and also of both sexes will be endangered by the, the superstition of Christianity. He says this, for the contagion of this superstition has spread not only to cities, but also to villages and farms. Here, a Roman governor is reporting that the Christians were diversely engaged across all different kinds of people groups, ages, sexes, in both cities and in rural areas. So sufficiently that the governor had to write to the emperor to engage. The Christian message was spreading extremely fast and extremely diversely. And so to dissuade the movement, Pliny and Trajan began to execute and pro prosecute and execute Christians who refused to recant. Think about this. So here we have a movement that is reaching across all kinds of divides, economic, gender, racial, religious, linguistic, to rapidly reproduce. And it's doing so in the face of significant opposition and persecution and with very little formal organizational or hierarchical structure to facilitate that growth. In fact, it isn't until the fourth century that Christianity is even really recognized as legitimate by the Roman Empire. 
It's not until the year 241 that we find evidence of the very first Christian church building. If we think church buildings are important, they didn't have them for the first 200 years of the church. Well, yes, there were some church structures that were coming into being. The church did not grow through a top-down, regimented approach, but through an organic response to genuine experiences in the face of tremendous opposition. Why is this important? Because the Christian faith grew in the first several hundred years for one reason. The people who professed faith in the Christian faith genuinely believed what they had experienced and were unified in the core beliefs of that experience, notably the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is unique in world religions. Christianity did not grow to have the influence that it had through force or military or government or structure. Christianity grew on the basis of its statements about truth and the experiences of those who confessed Christ. By contrast, for example, Islam about 600 years later grew extremely rapidly as well. In fact, it probably grew faster. However, Islam primarily grew through a conquest approach by conquering the neighboring peoples and including them into Islam, a very different approach, military and hierarchical. Now for the story of Jesus to be truly good news and the center of human history, the story of Jesus needs to apply to all people, regardless of race, age, or gender. And so this leads us to the second implication of the unique nature of the church in its first several hundred years, is that it was and always has been tremendously multi-ethnic. The church has never been a monoculture. Christianity has always existed within the confines of whatever culture it finds itself in. And in the first several hundred years, we see evidence of the church in Mediterranean, European, Asian, North African, and Middle Eastern cultures. This is reflected on mass even today, and contrary to the popular and entirely false belief that Christianity is a white Western religion. It's not true. The largest churches in the world are all are in places such as India, Korea, China, and Nigeria. Christianity has never been a mono-ethnic, mono-culture religion. It has always been a multi-ethnic faith practiced by people of every tribe, color, background, age, stage, class, dating back to the very first followers of Jesus. The multi-ethnic nature of Christianity was a direct result of what the early Christians understood Jesus to be doing. They understood that in Christ, Jesus was creating a new family. A new family that crossed all the divides. Peter, Jesus' good friend, wrote this. He said, And when you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house 
a royal, holy priesthood. The early Christians saw that the implications of a resurrected Jesus meant that all people in all places could be united into a common family. That was a new and truly beautiful idea. And it's the idea that catalyzed the movement starting in the first century that we see today. And so if Jesus' resurrection radically changed individuals, formed a new community and launched a worldwide movement, what does that mean for us today? I'm gonna to let you ponder that and then Alex is gonna be in to ask the question, so what? Welcome back, guys. For the next few moments, I want us to consider what does all of this now mean for us today as the church? Like if the resurrection of Jesus, if it did radically change individuals, if it did form a new community and launch a worldwide movement, I think the question now is what is our role in that? What does that mean for us today? Because we do have a beautiful role and invitation in that story that Robin has just laid out for us. In other words, that which Jesus' resurrection started continues today. And we, all of us who put our faith in Jesus, we can be, we are the church, the family of God. It's this body of people that come together for something beyond ourselves, completely beyond ourselves, but actually come together to glorify the God who's made us family. We can be the church, the body of Christ. And the church is first and foremost about lifting up the name of God, making Jesus known. The church is about worshiping our good God. Now, what I want to get us to think about tonight is that the incredible thing about worship of this God is that we are actually completely changed in the process as well. You see, in, in God's grace, in his great compassion, he's given us the blessing of the church. And it's here as a part of this family that our deep longings, our questions of identity, of community and purpose are actually answered in a beautifully profound way. Just like Robin shared, the resurrection of Jesus changed radically a set of individuals. God is continuing to do that through his church now today and speaking to our questions of identity of who am I? Just like the resurrection of Jesus formed a new community, so too the church continues today to speak to our sense of belonging. Who am I with? And just like it launched a new worldwide movement, God's church continues today to speak to our sense of purpose. Where am I going? What is my life for? 
You see, as we come together as the body of Jesus to glorify God who saved us and loved us, we are completely changed along the way. As we consider how are we involved, what does this mean for us today? Let me walk through those three things briefly tonight. Identity, community, and purpose. How does the church, the family of God, speak to those things for us today? So that first question, that first longing, identity, who am I? Let's consider that for a moment. Am I secure? Who am I really? You know, I'm sure we can all recognize that there are many different sources that we can at times turn to in an effort to answer this question for ourselves. Maybe you've even tried this or you feel like you're trying it right now to define yourself by any sort of achievement. We can look to grasp for a sense of security through the approval of other people or affirmation or attention from a, from a particular person or group of people. Maybe for others, we, we just strive and perform for this, what feels like an elusive satisfaction of an ideal career, a perfect relationship or family, a physical look or appearance, financial comfort, even religious behavior. But while those things might be fine in their place, the question of identity helps us understand that they were never intended nor able to actually save us, to define us. Your identity can't be found in those places. It's not who you are. Like a hamster on a wheel, sprinting and sprinting, we can spend years of our lives chasing that which cannot be found. You see, things that are made in our image can't be the kind of life and security that the human heart longs for because we have been made in God's image. And so we're asking created things to perform a role that they can't actually withstand. The question of who am I, identity, needs to come back to the one who created us in the first place. It needs to come back to the one who designed you to know him, the one who truly makes you alive. People and things can't save us from insecurity. They can't define our core sense of self, and here's why. Because the answer to who am I isn't something that we can just go out and find. No, it's actually a gift that's given to us. A secure identity is discovered as we realize that there's a God and it's not us. And rather than going off to try to find myself or find this answer of who am I, it's actually only known when we accept the truth that we are the ones that need to be found. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus is that we have been found by the one who created us. You see, the the gospel beautifully answers this deep longing of identity by declaring that Jesus has made a way for all people to be adopted into the family of God, the church, and therefore given the identity of a child of God. Listen to John chapter 1, 11 to 13. John says that he, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or the will of man, but born of God. The church of Jesus answers this question, who am I? When we give our lives to him, we become children of God, secure in his love, secure in the joy of walking with him personally. As a child of God, you can be secure in the fact that you couldn't 
earn your way into the family, therefore you can't fail your way out. You see, your longing for approval, acceptance, recognition, they only find their answer at home as a child of God. You're not the product of the approval of family or parents or the rejection of family. Not the product of affirmation or attention of other people. Your value isn't dependent on final grades or academic achievements, how your lifestyle looks on social media or even how good of a parent you think you are or you're not. No, because of Jesus, your identity is a gift that can be given to you, a child of God in his family, accepted, deeply loved, approved. A person, a son or daughter with tremendous and precious value. That's who you are. And it's in the church. It's in the family of God, part of this body that we can know that and live into it. The church also speaks then to this question of, of belonging or community. Who are my people? Do I have a place in this life or am I all by myself? Community, who am I with? So just as we, through Jesus, can be children of God, we also have brothers and sisters. There's no only children in the family of God. To the question of who am I with, the gospel says you have brothers and sisters, and this too is a gift given by Jesus. Listen to Galatians 3, 27 and 29. Paul says, For those of you who are baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because of Jesus, we are all part of this grand church, this family of God that goes back to the early believers that Robin talked about. Think about your biological family. What makes family family? It's a shared bloodline, right? Well, this is the same for the church. We too share the same blood, but it's the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Christ is stronger and deeper even than biological family. His work on the cross is enough to bring us together all people reconciled together. Ephesians 2, 19 to 20 says, So then you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We are not strangers. Who am I with? Well, as we surrender to Jesus, we become his family. He reconciles all together. There is no barrier too great, no difference too wide that the blood of Jesus cannot unify. So often we, we can carry this kind of deep-seated desire to be seen in life or to be accepted, to be loved. Because, of course, we were not designed, we weren't created to be islands, lone rangers in life. Whether we're introverted, extroverted, outgoing, shy, young, old, we all want to be known and have a home. And it's to this question of who are my people? Do I belong anywhere? That the gospel says, yes, you can be home in Jesus' church as a part of God's family. You can be received into a family as a brother or sister, not because of anything you've done to earn it, but simply because of his work and the grace of Jesus. Can you see what this would mean? It means that you're never alone. Even in suffering, you're not alone because when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. We suffer together. 
When one part rejoices, we all rejoice together. We're never alone. Of course, that's not, it's not perfect because we're not perfect. And it certainly isn't always easy. But by the grace of Jesus, we are able to bring together that which the world often wants to divide or separate. We can even navigate the messiness or the pain of conflict, of hurt. We can walk together as family for the long haul because of the grace of Jesus. In the church, the family of God, you can have belonging. Brothers and sisters, you can have a home. Community, who am I with? And finally, this church that started, that was launched with the resurrection of Jesus, continues today, and it speaks to our longing for a life of purpose. Where am I going? Where am I going? This too is a gift that we receive. And I think first, the gospel actually changes the question in a pretty beautiful way. The gospel actually takes that longing that we have for a life of meaning and takes the focus off of ourselves and it places it onto God and to others. And so the, the, the question of purpose is no longer a question of what's my purpose as if my life was an island, but actually how does being a part of this family give me a sense of purpose with them? It changes the longing to where are we going together? And to that, Jesus says, you're going where I'm going. To be a follower of Jesus, to be part of the church, is to live a life where we enter into other people's brokenness so that they might be found by God. Just like Jesus did for us, we are going where Jesus has gone for us. You see it? We can have a life of purpose. Purpose found in serving and loving those who don't yet know God, proclaiming the good news of Jesus that they can be brought back to him as well that they can be welcomed into his family and receive the gift of identity, community, and purpose. Your life is far from meaningless, and it's even so much more precious than just getting through, surviving, or building your own personal kingdom. You've been blessed to be a blessing. You've been given life, abilities, resources, time, all to love others and see them come alive in knowing Christ. Can you see how just as your identity and belonging are gifts to receive, so too is purpose. You don't need to go find an answer to why am I alive? What's the meaning of life? You are alive to partner with this good God and what he's doing here on earth. Your life is meant to love and serve others. That's what you were made for. That's what he created you for. Purpose is a gift given from our good God. He gives us a life of clarity and it's not about us, but it's about something bigger than us, something that will outlast us to love others the way Christ has loved us out of gratitude for what he's done. In a moment, Robin and I are going to kind of close with some thoughts on, on, on so what, uh, and then we're going to get into questions later on. So get those in, but uh, we'll be right back in just a moment.
All right, welcome back, guys. Okay, Robin, help us land this in a so what. What do we do with all this? Well, I mean, I'm just like reflecting on what you were just sharing. That was amazing. <laughs> it's pretty, uh, the, the news of Jesus is just like so beautiful. It really is, yeah. I, I, I think for me, the, the thing that is so earth shattering is that the church grew because they had experienced and believed something mm -hmm. that was factual, like they truly believed that this had happened and therefore it changed their lives. The early church, you see this like breaking down of barriers between people that formerly hated each other and all of a sudden they start loving each other. Like, right. how did that happen? Right. Like, that <laughs> it's doesn't, radical. Like, people don't just, you don't just mm. see like ethnic division just disappear overnight. Sure. Um, you don't just see people launch global movements based on events that didn't happen. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so I think that what we're looking at in the story of the church is that it is a story of experience and response hmm. of individuals and communities responding to Jesus. And for us today, what that means is that the invitation of Christianity remains the same to, ex to experience and respond to Jesus uh, in the same way that the, the early church did, so we do too. Yeah. Um, it's not this like structured, didactic, forceful, organizational thing it is a invitation to experience a person mm. and that's what drove the growth of the church and yeah. that's the invitation for us today that's why this matters that's awesome so uh just kind of jumping off that my my so what is very much related and right. it's very much related to sunday's invitation which i kind of shared to accept jesus like to respond to jesus as lord yeah and i think that's that's certainly a huge foundational part of it. But then there's also this invitation now to uh, accept his invitation to become part of the family. Yeah. And so accept brothers and sisters, like yeah. me accept you as my brother and the family. Yeah. And, and kind of dr drop this constant pursuit of like, what's my life all about? What am yeah. I here for? Yeah. And realize that in Jesus I've been found. And so start to walk, you know, come into the church, basically come into the family of God yeah. and walk with brothers and sisters. Yeah. Uh, live out that daily encounter with Jesus yeah. in in community for a reason, like on purpose. So and that's so beautiful. The idea that we are invited to receive receive Jesus, but when we do, also receive each other. We get the fa family comes with it. <laughs> yeah, and the church is not like this institution. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. This organization. It's it's a family, mm. um, and that goes all the way back to the, the very first followers of Jesus. And, and that's why we look to them and are so encouraged, right? So, yeah, it's pretty uh, wild that we're part of that same that same story. The same story, like the yeah. s the story that that you know, reading about uh, Trajan and Pliny, they're trying to figure it out. Like the story of those Christians is our story. Yeah, absolutely. These people across are experiencing this Jesus, and that like, it should transform culture. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think that's kind of our for those that are tuning in. Like, what we're hoping for for you, is that you would receive that invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And. To, to, to become a part of the family as you also know Jesus. Mm. And um, this past Sunday, we were able to celebrate two of our sisters uh, who joined the family, uh, Jen and Vivian, and they, they were baptized. And as they were baptized, it was them confessing Jesus as Lord, receiving uh, who he was as Lord, but also receiving an invitation to family. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna kick it to actually a recording 
because uh, we weren't able to do it live on Sunday, but here's Jen and Vivian's baptism story. Before you go at the end, we're gonna come back for Q&A. We'd love to know what you guys are uh, curious about. If you have questions, we'll do our best. If we don't know the answer, we'll come back with it on Sunday. So don't leave afterwards, Q&A is right up. You can start to drop your questions in the chat, but here's Jen and Vivian's story. Hey everyone, my name's Courtney and I serve as a Simple Church Regional Director for McMaster A and today we're celebrating baptisms. So baptism is an outward sign of an inner working that Jesus has done in us. As followers of Jesus, we get baptized in obedience to what Jesus has called us to do. This is also a representation of a public commitment um, that we are making to follow the Lord and walk with our church family. So also it's a celebration, so we can celebrate and be excited about it as Jen and Vivian are being baptized today. It's a sign that they're both fully alive in Jesus. We love baptisms here at our church, Lift Church, and it's what Jesus has commanded us to do in Matthew 28, which says to baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why we have our simple church leaders perform the baptisms. So today, Susan and I will be baptizing Jen and Vivian. Yes. Okay. When they're both baptized, they'll be asked these three questions. Um, one, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he lived, died, and was raised to new life again? Two, have you acknowledged your need for a savior, repented of your sins, and accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and savior? And three, do you commit to following Jesus for the rest of your life? So first, Vivian's going to come and share her story, and then Jen will come afterwards. So come on up, Vivian. Okay, so my name is Vivian, and here we go, I guess. <laughs> um, so someone once told me I was known as the girl who runs a lot at Lyft, and I don't really know how true that is, but I guess today I'll try to tell you why. <laughs> Um, so I used to be a runner, not like the kind of runner you're thinking of, the kind of runner I'd like to be, but I mean that I'd run away from all the problems in my life, both literally and figuratively. So growing up, I was exposed to religion here and there, but my family didn't actively practice any faith. I acknowledged God's existence, was familiar with the gist of the gospel, but nothing ever stuck. To me, religion seemed like a set of rules to follow. I didn't want God telling me how to live my life, and more importantly, I thought I was completely capable of handling, handling life on my own. In my third year, I found out how wrong I was about handling life on my own. <laughs> life happens, and it was just one of those times when life became a lot to handle. And I remember that my mind was running at a million miles per hour all the time, exploding with thoughts and memories that I didn't want to be thinking about. Um, I felt like I had to outrun all of it, and I felt like I couldn't slow down. And I discovered that physical pain was a good way to put it all at the back of my mind. And as a student athlete, the natural thing for me to do was to do a lot of painful workouts, the kinds that my teammates dreaded. I remember doing high-intensity running workouts every day on top of my morning rows. I often skipped recovery days and replaced them with more high-intensity stuff. Um, from the outside, everyone just thought I was a dedicated athlete, but on the inside, um, I was just obsessed with the physical pain because at least it made me forget about the mental pain. All I wanted to do was to forget, and it felt like the only way to forget, even just temporarily, was to exhaust myself to the point where I literally couldn't think. Um, I buried myself in schoolwork. 
I went to parties every weekend and drank a lot. I pushed myself to the point of throwing up almost every practice. And of course, I went on a lot of angry, emotional runs. And a month later, I was completely burnt out, unsurprisingly. <laughs> um, if I'm being completely honest, I don't really remember how I started going to lift. A friend introduced me to a few friends who, was, who were Simper Church leaders. And the next thing I knew, I was in some random girl's living room sipping Earl Grey tea and reading the Bible with a bunch of strangers. And um, I don't know how else to, ex to explain this, but I felt like that was exactly where I needed to be. Sitting in that room full of people I didn't know, um, people who were somehow so open and so warm-hearted, and hearing them pray with each other and hearing them praise God with all their hearts. I felt a strange sense of peace, and I felt like maybe it was finally time to stop running. Over the next little while, I felt my faith grow. I quickly realized that time spent with God was actually pretty cool. He isn't the authoritarian figure that I grew up believing he was, but rather he's our rock, our greatest friend and greatest comforter. Slowly, the obsession with running away from my problems was replaced with God's stability. My obsession with chasing physical pain was replaced with God's love. And all of my other unhealthy obsessions were replaced with God's grace. I'm so thankful for the people that God has put into my life. People who remind me of God's goodness when I don't see it. People who push me towards Jesus when I stray away. And people who push me to constantly love. I started to think more about how much God really meant to me and how God has changed me. I feel like in our culture, the way you get through tough times is to just bite the bullet. And not to brag, but I was actually really good at that. We're told that the more we push, the faster we push, the faster we pick ourselves up, um, the more we hone in, the more we hold on to dear life. That's how you eventually reach an ideal perfection. I used to want to be as far away from what happened in the past. To me, I was my perfect self when I was distanced from all of that. I found myself doing what I do best. I'd run away from my problems, run away from my thoughts, and at times, I would run away from God. However, more recently, I realized that there is always something greater, no matter the circumstances. And that's because of Jesus. My perfect ideal self was honestly pretty crap. And, there's nothing cl and it's nothing close to how great God's version is. It's taking me a lot to trust that and to fully let go and embrace that. If I've learned anything over the past year, it's that it doesn't matter how much I try to distance myself from God. His love always catches up, always holds me steady, and always pushes me forward. And so I'm here today because it's finally time to say yes to what God has been calling me to do for a while now. It's time to officially say yes to Jesus. I'm so excited to see what God has in store for me, this church, and his kingdom. It's time to leap boldly into God's arms, and most of all, it's finally time to stop running.
in my life, I had become a single mother. It was extremely challenging at the time. Uh, my son was diagnosed with autism, and I felt very alone within the um, diagnosis of my son and what to do next, and also being on my own, uh, actually for the first time in life. Um, it was a lot to comprehend, and I didn't even feel that I could reach out for support to anyone in my family or my friend circle. Um, it took many years, I would say, um, with the challenges that I had come up against to reason in myself how to deal with them. Um, and after these many years went by, I was just tired. Um, and I met Courtney, who reached out to me when I needed it the most. <laughs> and through her, I felt my strongest connection to God. And I finally felt peace and the love God has for my son William and I. Um, and I'm just happy to be kind of like home, um, to, to bring myself fully to accept God as my savior. And I just kept it short like that. But yeah, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, thank you everyone for celebrating with us for Jen and Vivian's baptism and have a really blessed day church. Bye. <laughs> Oh, we're live. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, apparently, we're live. We were uh, watching the baptism, watching it live. So we were thirty seconds delayed. I was engrossed. Wasn't the, weren't those baptisms amazing? So great! Uh, wow, so proud, so uh, encouraged by your stories, Vivian and Jen. Uh, so powerful. To see, uh, I don't know, man. I we've done a lot of baptisms in our church, and it's like everyone. It's like it's seeing it for the first oh, time. Oh, absolutely! It's so incredible. Um, yeah, just hearing their testimonies, I was like, oh, we could have just played that tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, why didn't we talk for yeah. 40 minutes? For Should sure. Just, uh, Congratulations, guys. Really awesome. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're going to do some Q&A time. We've been going for quite a while tonight, so I, I hope there's some questions. If we, wa we wanted to make sure there was space, uh, so if you have questions, drop them in. But yeah, just lots of in the, in the different chat systems. So much love for Vivian and Jen. That's what family looks like. Absolutely. That's what we're talking about. I know that I'm sure everyone in the chat too is just wishing they could have been there. Yeah. Uh, there's something about baptisms in person too, but one day we'll get back. We'll be able to do that we again. Will, we will do it in person again. Yeah. So even if you guys have questions going back to Good Friday, Easter Sunday, I know it feels like a long time <laughs> away, but yeah. uh, drop those in too. It doesn't necessarily have to be just about tonight. So give a little bit of time for you guys to get in on that.
go. We'll see what people have. Not it's kind of hard to ask questions after after baptism. Yeah. So, um, Are you excited for Sunday? I'm very much looking forward to Sunday. We're going to be talking about the, the prophetic side of things, mm -hmm. which I think will be really neat. It's sort of the story of Scripture and how God was speaking and and anticipating and looking ahead to Jesus, going all the way back to um, the very first chapters of Genesis, the yeah. beginning of the Bible. It's so. something that maybe we don't think about a lot. Yeah. That Easter isn't just kind of like dropped out of nowhere. Yeah, this there's like a event. context for yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So. All right. Well, I think. Maybe we just taught so well, Robin, that there's no questions. <laughs> Everyone's good. Well, if you have questions, drop them in. Um, we'll get to them. Uh, if we don't get to them on Sunday, we'll get to them on the next webcast. We'll absolutely. make sure there's time. Yeah. But uh, so appreciate all of you being with us these last couple of days. We're going to wrap things up on Sunday. It's going to be great. And uh, very much love and uh, grateful for our church family. And so we'll wrap the webcast up for there. We'll see you Sunday. Be blessed and have a great week, church. See you guys.